0: This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at altizen.com altize Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Anthony Bartolo from Tata Communications and his perspectives on the carrier networks, enterprise mobility and consumer Internet of Things and how the Asia landscape is changing at an exponential rate. Hi Anthony.
1: Hi Bernard, how are you?
0: I'm good. Thank you for hosting me here in Tata Communications Singapore.
1: Oh, it's my (laughs) deepest pleasure.
0: Yeah, I've been wanting to have this conversation with you and I should thank our common friend Charles Anderson for bringing us together, and we have a pretty interesting coffee conversation on Internet of Things, and you're probably one of the few people in Singapore that I want to talk to because your insights on these subjects are really deep. So who am I talking to? I'm talking to Anthony Bartolo, President, Business Collaboration, Mobility, Internet of Things Solutions for Tata Communications. So I definitely have talked a lot, and I want to hear Anthony, your story, how did you start
1: your career? Well, you can tell from the accent or not, I started in Australia, Melbourne, Australia. I was an engineer and quickly found myself in global roles. So uh, starting from humble Melbourne, uh, I found myself doing stints in Australia naturally, throughout Australia, New Zealand, Malaysia, Philippines, uh, London, India, Paris, and ultimately in Singapore. And this was where I spent my 90s. And I did that with companies such as Nortel Networks and Symbol Technologies, which was acquired by Motorola. I spent my 2000s effectively in the US. I spent 15 years in Silicon Valley. Really enjoyed that, doing uh, startups and uh, working for companies such as Avaya. And then it was Tata Communications that effectively brought me back to the region again. So this is my second stint now in Singapore. I've been here for the last four years, really thoroughly enjoying it.
0: I guess in your career journey, because you have done startups, you have been in the corporate world, you have gone through Asia and even Silicon Valley and now back here. I guess there must be a lot of interesting things that you learned about. What are the interesting career lessons that you have learned?
1: Uh, That's a really good question. I I think it's important to put it in the context of going from startups to large companies, from enterprises to global solutions providers. There are three or four things for me that effectively become thoughts or philosophies that last more than one particular type of company. And that is the first and most important one for me is that intelligent people don't do what they're told. They do what they believe in and understand. So you can never shortcut a a, a decision. I think you really need to have your team really understand the philosophy behind it. The other is never fall in love with the technology. Falling in love with the customer, I think, makes a lot of sense because falling in love with the customer allows you to find a better way to service that customer, and it also may help you prolong your career at the same time. And I find that that's a common pitfall many people do in the high-tech space. We tend to fall in love with the technology, and we, it's like going down with the ship. Like We insist that it's the best thing since sliced bread. The other is that there's a solution to every problem, every intractable problem. Uh, things are never as bad as they seem or as good as they seem from afar. It's usually somewhere in between. And that's really allowed me to stay somewhat steady when looking at a, at a business or, a, or an issue or a concern. It allows you to have a, an ob- objective approach to, to solving these issues. And the last is, personal one, is never take yourself too seriously. I think that's, uh, that's, <clears> uh, that's pretty important in this, this game.
0: Yeah, I think the point of not falling in love with technology is a pretty important one because I think sometimes through engaging the customer, you also learn the new problems that, and then you iterate your technology towards solving bigger problems. And that's how successful companies differ from many other companies that have failed along with their love of
1: technology. Yeah, you're exactly right. I think it allows you to listen. I mean, you're actually listening to the customer when you have an objective approach to something like that. And I think that's terribly important because sometimes we're focusing on the technical or engineering minutiae of an issue or a concern, but the customer may not technically care about it, and nor can they progress your course either. I mean, they're usually not... So in a lot of cases not technically savvy. They may have another core competency that they're focusing on. Technology is just a method to get them to to be more efficient, effective or responsive to their customers.
0: I think this is where we want to come to the main topic because I think one of the interesting part of it is the company Tata Communications, which is part of the most well known Tata group in mm-hmm. India. So it's based in Singapore. So I want to first start off by asking you: Can you briefly describe Tata Communications and what it does in the networking space?
1: Sure. Well, over the past decade, Tata has actually come from being a wholesale service provider to a effectively in the Indian market to becoming a leading service provider on a global global basis. So. We provide new world communications to enterprise customers and service providers. We don't go directly to the end consumer, so we're a B2B or a to c service provider. We're a global company. We're based here in Singapore and also in Mumbai. We have roots in emerging markets, so it's something that we have a core competency on. We're about $3 billion public company. We're a part of a very large Tata group with a flagship telecoms arm of, of that group, and that group's $103-plus uh, billion. Today, we have 75 to 77 percent of our revenues outside of India, so we are truly global in many senses of the word. We have 8,500 employees with the largest wholesale provider doing some 53 plus billion minutes of wholesale voice traffic annually. We touch some one in 10 voice calls a day. We also have 1600 telco relationships, which is a lot of people don't recognize, that allow us to connect you to any carrier effectively in the world, and 70% of the world's mobile network operators as well. We have the world's largest wholly owned terrestrial and subsea cable network in the world, some 710,000 kilometres of terrestrial and subsea fibre, carry 24% of the world's internet traffic, 44 data centres, 400 pops around the world. We have some 15 terabytes plus of uh, lit fibre around the world. So... Quite a significant infrastructure offering that allows us to offer services globally.
0: So, I guess most of the so called day to day access through your infrastructure, but they are actual customers, actually, the operators that actually gave them that infrastructure, for example, the telcos in Asia.
1: Yeah, it's operators and multinational companies. So, our customers are, we're this, a lot of people call us the service provider to the service providers, and we also deal with multinational companies. Multinational companies who have uh, offerings in many countries around the world often come to us directly in order to service their needs yeah, And also that the be cables, right? Yeah. Coming from the US yeah. to Asia? Yeah, and yeah. To yeah. some, and, company, uh, yeah, some uh, companies uh, uh, come directly to us. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're an enabler. We enable a service provider to look global. So they go from being in one jurisdiction, because if you look at the telco space, they're very, they're, they're landlocked. They have a jurisdiction in any particular area, country, or jurisdiction, and when they want to go outside of that, they come to somebody like us. And multinationals do the same thing. Multinationals have, they operate in 15 countries, or maybe like us, operate in 38 countries. Do they want to go and have a sign a contract in 38 separate countries with 38 separate carriers, or do they come to a one-stop shop such as ourselves and do that, and then we add services on top of that for them, anything from... Unified Communications to uh, Mobility Services and IoT, etc.
0: What's your current role and coverage in Tata Communications?
1: Sure. I run the Collaboration Unified Communications suite of products, the Mobility Portfolio and the IoT Portfolio for Tata Communications. Mm. And And that's worldwide.
0: That's actually with all the network infrastructure and then how you actually... Built these solutions on top of that infrastructure.
1: Correct. They sit on top of this fiber, huge fiber and and uh, uh, network infrastructure. Because capillarity is a very important concept. Because the the closer you can become to that end customer or that end customer's customers, the better you can serve those customers. Particularly in the latency sensitive world that we live in live in today. So my services sit on top of that infrastructure that we right. have.
0: And, and suppose latency is a very important problem in managing networks.
1: It is. It's well, it's an important problem managing applications. I mean we keep talking about I think you and I've had this conversation in the past which is we talk about latency sensitive things or interesting things such as automated vehicles or UAVs etc. Latency is really important that responsiveness in an automated vehicle needs to be near human responsiveness and you need the lowest latency possible you can't wait for a signal to traverse the world and then come back before it decides that it needs to turn a corner or apply the brakes
0: yeah i think a lot of people don't appreciate that how fast things actually load in time oh yeah even with applications and they don't know that most of it is actually powered by networks run by infrastructure providers such as yourself to make sure that Nothing goes wrong in the process.
1: Yeah. I think you'll find that applications more and more will get sensitized to the latency. Their capabilities will move in orders of magnitude as we reduce the latency for for Mm -hmm. some of this processing, particularly at the edge. I
0: think the more interesting part of the conversation, because you've built on top of the infrastructure layer. What are the products and services that's provided by Tata Communications in your area of interest there?
1: Sure. For mine, it's unified communications, cloud data centers, uh, network, naturally, security and mobility and IoT. So I focus primarily on the unified communications. That could be mm-hmm. any collaboration services or Connectivity that's required, whether that's services such as Sky for Business or WebEx or Cisco products, or or video, audio, video, web conferencing that are required that that facilitate collaboration within an enterprise. And that becomes exacerbated when you're talking about multinationals. Collaboration becomes really important. Obviously, you can get on a plane to do that. However, it's obviously much more practical, to and we all do it today, every day with web and audio and video conferencing. So we facilitate that. Our mobility portfolio, which allows us to offer mobility in a, on a global basis, that is cross-border mobility the ability to do cross-border iot for instance where if you want to track something and it goes outside the jurisdiction of your regular carrier or the network that you're using you tend to want to look for solutions that that span cross-border
0: yeah which makes asset management very very complex because if you have like a real infrastructure for example power lines right you yeah. so know you think about say oil rigs for example you think about base stations in, in, in country i mean, Singapore is, is nowhere use case you're talking about big countries like say India, China, Malaysia you know where they big landmass sparse landscapes and and then you think about putting those infrastructure in place you also have to do the asset management side I guess in your space you actually have to even help to get all those assets so that they can be able to know exactly which note is going down and how the communication goals
1: between these right? yeah I mean that's that's certainly one aspect the other is if you think about those very large countries for instance let's look at asset tracking I think Europe and, and Asia are two areas of the world where this this is really apparent because if you think of, let's talk about Europe because you're you're effectively landlocked the ability to track a an asset that goes from one country to another, and sometimes back and forth and in multiple countries is actually, it's, it's non-trivial at the latencies that you're expected to expected to do it, depending on the application, at the value of the asset that you're looking for, at the accuracy that you're looking for. Then think about Asia. We go once again from country to country, the ability to track a pallet, a pallet of very valuable cargo or, or perishable items going from one country to another, That goes outside the jurisdiction of your local friendly carrier. These become intractable problems for your local carrier, but they're a common one that we solve in someone such as ourselves who have a global purview. So we run into that on a on a quite a regular basis. Who
0: are the customers to your products and services? It is, I think you mentioned Telcos, that's one group. Yeah. There must be also other, what I call, infrastructure owners that are involved in this, right? Yeah,
1: most of the time it's once again uh, service providers as you've as you've articulated, but it's primarily B2B customers or b 2 b to c So it could be very much, much like very large players who have a platform of their own and we provide elements of that particular platform to service their customers in real time i'm thinking can i mention some of the customers so i'll refrain from uh, refrain from doing that but let's just say that you're using their products each and every day if you've got an internet connection and you're using any cloud player there's a very, very good chance that you're, you're sitting on top of a, a platform that has a Tata, a very large Tata component that, that supports it.
0: So much about talking about Tata uh, Communications and your work. So I want to talk to you about, I guess, the Internet of Things. And, and, and I think that, that the coffee we had the last time we had this one hour in-depth conversation, I want to distill some of those key insights I have from you. In your perspective, what are the critical factors that actually for Internet of Things will eventually gain adoption from customers. And by customers, I don't define the usual day-to-day customers. I'm talking about the enterprises. I think that's really where the adoption of IoT. Because the normal day, like you and me, we don't actually touch IoT. Our devices might touch IoT, but we don't really Unless you're talking about you know Fitbit or Apple Watch But come on Those are small pieces Of what scope really is
1: Well I think you've touched On the customer I mean the consumer space Versus the enterprise The consumer space Is effectively driven By convenience Convenience drives The consumer space And that drives scale Okay But in the enterprise side Ultimately that boils down To visibility The Insights that IoT provides to dark corners of a process or a supply chain or a service is what really is is going to drive uh, IoT in the enterprise. And we're seeing lots of evidence of that. We're seeing lots of proof of concepts in that particular area. You know, I've touched on a few. There's many concepts that are going on today with regards to. For instance, asset tracking and asset management, etc. Uh, whether it's healthcare, but then we're also seeing the businesses that we see in Singapore, like I think we've seen Mobike and uh, all the bicycle, the bicycle hubs that are out. Well, they're IoT devices that sit on those sit on those bicycles that unlock the bicycles. Right, the app effectively enables your ability to unlock and track the location of that device and unlock it and move from one user to another and do the appropriate billing and accounting for that uh, product, IoT enables that today. And and uh, so we see that in the those type of new services. Today.
0: Yeah, that's the part I, I'm interested in, right? You talk about bicycle. I think that's a very interesting use case. There's also the use case of UAVs, which you brought up earlier, and autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars. My question has always been, and, and I work on these areas too, so I always had this view that, I need 5G networks. And and the reason is that even though I think in the US, Tesla is using 3G and 4G networks mm-hmm. to facilitate their updates and data transmission, I think the latency problem is not really solved. Because if you started to have a thousand of these self-driving cars on the road and we start transmitting data into the cloud, the infrastructure will totally be in a meltdown without a fast mm-hmm. turnaround with, and latency as well. So mm-hmm. what is your view on... This is what I call the connected transportation world where the IoT infrastructure actually sits within it.
1: Sure. So I think you need to break any problem down. I have a tendency to look at a bell curve. So I take a look at all the different particular problem statements or solutions or use cases under a bell curve. And right now, IoT can cover 80% of those where latency may not be a dramatic Requirement. Yeah. Then you've got the edges of the bell curve and that's autonomous cars and maybe highly latency sensitive things such as UAV requirements, for instance. And they require very, very low latency. 5G can get us to, I think it's about 10 milliseconds of latency. So it still doesn't get us there because for fully autonomous cars, there's a requirement to be human-like, which is about a millisecond. So... That's an order of magnitude away. The reality is that's still an order of magnitude away. That doesn't mean that they're intractable or non-solvable problems. I think humanity and engineering is about understanding where you are and recognising where you want to go. If you understand those two points, engineering and uh, human ingenuity will get you there. When you can't get there, that's because you really don't know where you're starting from or you don't know where you're going to, or sometimes both. When you have both... We have proven the ability to solve for those. And I think that's just a a matter of time. I don't think it's tomorrow. I don't think it gets solved with 5G. But what 5G enables is a larger swath of use cases to be available to us. Likewise, by the way, batteries. You know, it was the other conversation. that I, I believe you and I talked about batteries once before too. I want you to think about the concept of... The size size of a battery determines the form factor of effectively everything that we use. The electric vehicle, our watches, our Fitbit, our wearable is the size of the battery, that form factor. And I think as technology really progresses in battery technology, we will see use cases really start to explode, those corner cases go away, how much power something consumes fundamentally determines its practical its practical lifespan or applicability because the battery is only so big, right? Or the weight of the battery, right? It's not only the physical size, but it's the density in the way. And those things are huge factors. They're factors in drones, yeah. right? We all know that. In drones, can you imagine if the technology moved at orders of magnitude for the batteries? All of a sudden there'd be concepts that, that appear before us that were once unfathomable, which are, are available to us. And I think we're, we're entering into that era now because I think slowly there's the realisation that we're embarking on this, uh, on these opportunities and there are one or two things that are holding us back.
0: I thought I should add on that because uh, on the way I explain autonomous vehicles internally, it's like it's easy to get one self-driving truck to perform <laughs> a logistic operations and you know we can do a demo and make everybody happy. But the real business case is that you need at least 10 trucks if you try to charge all 10 of them at the same time, you're basically taking out the whole power grid of that entire area. And I think that no one has actually solved that problem properly at the moment.
1: No, absolutely. Look, plugging in an electric vehicle is equivalent to uh, putting on a new household onto the grid, uh, let's face it. And then we talk about autonomous vehicles, just to digress for a minute. We live here in Singapore in a place that is almost perfect for being able to kick off something like that because it's well, it's highly structured, people follow the codes, the building codes... It's very well mapped. There's not. I don't. I don't think I've run into a pothole since I've been here in four years. So uh, that says something about the quality of our infrastructure. Yet we find that it's not here. It hasn't progressed much further than in any distinction, further than any other country. And that just tells you the complexity that surrounds. Something like that. And sometimes, a lot of times, they're not technical. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of times they may span political boundaries or jurisdictional boundaries that are who owns what pieces of infrastructure. And that's what you run into. That's what IoT also does. IoT, the inhibitor for IoT, is that it provides so many insights in a supply chain or a healthcare process that it starts to cross the political boundaries inside the enterprise. Who owns it? Whose jurisdiction does it sit within before they can make a decision for scale? Everyone who might be listening to this podcast sits may sit within a large organization and they know that there are some decisions that they need to involve other departments or other areas. Well, IoT does that. IoT exposes those bright lines or, or junctures or fissures inside an organization and therefore that slows down decision making because... Is it a part of your key imperatives? Do they share? Does someone else in that department share your key imperatives? And they may be at conflict. And that's what we find right now. We find that IoT opens up, once again, a lot of that sheds light and there's a lot of dark spaces inside a process or a supply chain or a or a product or a service that sometimes you want that visibility, but you also may expose things that you may not want to see inside your organisation. And the one thing it exposes is decision making. Some people are prepared for a decision because it's their project, others didn't even realise that they had a uh, decision to make and uh, <laughs> and sometimes people like avoiding making decisions.
0: The unintended consequences I, I would assume is that. so. Where do you think are the most interesting applications of IoT in your opinion? I mean, in your realm of expertise.
1: Uh, okay, so firstly, I think human safety. Human safety is an area that gets a lot of attention. We have a, uh, and, and let me sort of articulate the background. We have deployed a LoRa network that in India. In the last nine months, we've covered uh, 128 million people in the network. It just tells you the speed at which you can deploy a network such as that, and we'll be covering 400 million by the end of end of next year. What we found there's really interesting use cases are human safety, whether it's people working in hazardous environments wearing a safety watch, for instance, that that measures not only the Fitbit type of things, such mm-hmm. as your heart rate and uh, etc., but Are you lying down? Have you moved in any reasonable period of time? Are you in a very high temperature environment such as a blast furnace? Noxious gases may have a a gas sensor in the watch. These are getting tremendous attention because the use case or the business case associated with how do you value a life? How do you value the, pre- the prevention of an accident in the work- workplace? Also, that it's quite topical to have female in the workplace tracking their safety in a particular workplace or on a subcontinent happens to be topical right now. So we're seeing human safety being a big deal. We're naturally seeing asset tracking. We've <laughs> talked about that. And supply chain, we're seeing lots of those types of u- use cases. Payments, the facilitation of payments... I mean, payment is not simply, hey, let me do a, a payla or a touchless credit card. What about understanding the stock inside a retail outlet so i can pay my suppliers who, who stock those shelves being able to see that quickly or being able to detect that or detect whether the refrigerator is empty with my with a particular vendors beverages and therefore sending the right amount of beverages to that store to replenish the stock so there's no no shortage and it's right time right place right quantity type of thing we're seeing a lot of that and that touches into the food and agri business. I think they're really interesting spaces. I mean, I've, I've actually seen the agribusiness or food go to the, and this leads to the two sort of really interesting ones that I have. You know, we can detect now in Europe, they're detecting, you can detect the cheese. When we talk about farm to the table, you can detect which was the cow that was the originating supplier of that. Dairy product that moved into the cheese, so you can see where this ultimately goes, right? You can have prized cattle at some point in the future if they yeah, do this. Right. So you think about the ecosystem that forms around IoT, but then you get to the the one that put us, the ones that put smiles on your face, such as they've invented an IoT-enabled mousetrap. There is, we have invented a better mousetrap. You know, we've been talking about that for years, but the ability to have a mouse or, or a pest control device that can tell you whether it's been... Compromised. Yeah, yeah, whether it's gone off, there's something there, or just needs to be tripped. You know, that that changes business models, right? So we see that time and time again. I find that one a little bit funny. They're the one, that's the one I tell my kids about. so uh. Yeah,
0: so there is a difference between consumer enterprise IoT technologies. I guess my question to you is, what are your opinions... I mean, you talk a lot about the enterprise space. What are your thoughts on the consumer space?
1: Then? I think that, I mean, I'll go back to the statements I mentioned before. I think the consumers are, are fundamentally driven by convenience. And I think it's that convenience. Me, we, we can all relate to being consumers because that's what we all are. So I personally, and a lot of people don't, as much as I am a technocrat, I tend not to gravitate to the latest and greatest unless it drives a convenience factor for me. I look at it and say, What can it how does it enable more time for me or to be able to do something faster, quicker, better at better quality? We take it on mobile phone devices because effectively they're convenience tools. If you go back, if you're old enough and you go back to when you when we were first measuring what a mobile device the attributes of that device are important to you, it was the weight and it was time between charging. We have totally forgone those those criteria now because they now enable conveniences that are more important to us than the weight of the device or the time in between charges. They've effectively become a remote control for our lives and as a result we find that it's a classic example of why of, of how we see convenience overshadows anything else. And I think that's how consumers are fundamentally driven. and if you do that well, it drives scale. they're, they're scale item right they become platform un- unto themselves and you know that's how I see it right now the, in the consumer space so that's why it's a little bit more difficult to find the killer device or the killer app or the that you know we keep talking about that but mm. you can't manufacture that that is something the consumer as a whole decides I, I don't
0: know maybe sometimes i'm thinking that there may not exist that killer app it's a bunch of applications I agree. that essentially move you towards that final app that everybody take it to the next level.
1: Yeah, I think you have to define a killer app. Is it, you know, they're fickle. A killer app could be like a fidget spinner. You know fidget spinners? They were hugely, they were a huge spike, and now they've totally gone away. Or the killer app could be voice on a mobile network. Because a mobile network was, if you think about it, the killer app on a network was voice. That justified the capital expenditure to build out that network. Mm. But now that network's being used for way more than voice. Mm. The data, the data derivatives, we're talking about IoT, and all those derivatives came on the back of that killer application which was voice that justified the capital spend that now is sunk cost that we're taking tremendous well some people will take offense to me calling it sunk cost but many are taking advantage of that basic infrastructure that voice effectively laid the groundwork for so is there a killer app i think i agree with you you know i think it's really difficult to say there is such a thing
0: Unless it's so as well defined as the iPhone, right? <laughs> the iPhone is really the killer phone. I think it's a killer platform. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's only like once in maybe every two three decades <laughs> kind of thing. What are the key trends in business collaboration, mobility, and IoT that you're observing in the past year, and where do you think this will go in the next one two years?
1: Well, I would say most of the audience would have heard about business transformation and i believe that's a buzzword now but we have we have been talking i've been talking about it certainly for the last 3 or 4 years business transformation is more than a buzzword i think you're finding i can see cios every conversation i have with the cio they talk about themselves going through a business transformation if you don't let them get away with just saying that and stopping but actually asking Okay, what does that mean for you? Inevitably, they say they're going mobile first or a mobile or mobility platform, which in some cases they're foregoing, they're doing that at the expense of all other forms. That is, they're putting all their applications in a mobile device environment or enabled and foregoing all other forms. The desktop form goes by the wayside, everything becomes mobile. And I think that's a massive trend because that puts A lot of impetus on, well, connectivity is no longer a nice-to-have. It becomes (laughs) absolutely, absolutely required, and global mobility. You know, your high-value or your high ARPU, as a mobile network operator might say, but your high-value employees or assets, you tend to move globally. You do that because they're high-value because they're not readily available, so you move them around. Well, the minute they move from one jurisdiction to another, they need to stay connected. So otherwise, if they're not connected, then all these tools that the CIO has put in place are for naught because they can't get them in the places where they're at. So I think that's a a big trend. So that's driving mobility. I think that the other is smart cities. And we're seeing a lot of conversations over the last year or so around smart cities. And this is not restricted to highly developed countries such as Singapore, which is a city-state, but we see that in emerging countries who see it as a leapfrog to get them as advanced as possible. And so we're seeing lots of proof of concepts in smart city technologies, and and I don't think that's going to abate any time soon. I think we'll see that driving
0: to scale. And then where do you see that go in the next one, two years then?
1: Well, for IoT, I think that's going to go much further... the one or two years' time, I think, in the healthcare space will be much further along. I think that hasn't moved as fast as I thought it was going to move in the IoT space. I think that's where you run into those political boundaries, but they're more than just political boundaries. I think they start to span into regulations, etc. so that slows things down. I think that we're scratching the surface there in the healthcare space. Utilities metering, I think, will be at scale. So your gas metering, your electrical, your water i don 't think anyone will come and read a meter anymore if anyone 's d- developed yeah. IOT at scale. I think that one 's going to be the first the first domino to fall definitely human safety, asset tracking, supply chain they 'll be in production and driving to scale in the mobility space. I think we'll be driving large scale valuable insights through cross border solutions where you lost visibility when you crossed the border. I think you won't lose visibility going forward. I think they're going to be quite visible to you just as you would your own online viewing of your voice or data plan, right? You'll be able to do it, but you'll be able to do it in real time. I think we'll see global data networks that allow you to roam just like you're at home at the same quality, i.e. latency, as you are at home. You won't be sort of tromboning. Your traffic won't be going all the way back to your home network and then coming back to you. And I think that will happen at near local rates on a global plan. I really do think that that's going to happen. The data consumption is moving exponentially. Yep. And I don't think your local carrier, and it's moving exponentially on a global basis. I don't think your local carrier can sort of keep up. In some cases, I was
0: reading the GSMA intelligence report, and I think now people are talking about data consumption in exabytes, not petabytes. Yeah,
1: absolutely,
0: <laughs> absolutely. That's uh, another like six orders of magnitude away from what how people think about that.
1: Well, well, video consumption alone, if yeah. you think about it, it, it doesn't matter about the type of compression rates that you're going to get or compression algorithms. They're both working in tandem. The sheer Consumption of video is is massive. Look, there was a there was an exercise done in India. Just a just as an aside, there was a company called Reliance who went off and and gave data away for for free. And the average consumption of data per month for an uh, in, in in the developed world is 2.9 gig a month. When they gave away data for free, they did it for a temporary period of time the average consumption was 30 gig a month. And they were consuming video, video on demand. So now we know the elasticity of today. If you gave it away for free, at somewhere in between. So I, so I think that's very interesting because you don't often get that type of, type of actual data point. And the last is I think we'll be pushing rich media services such as Unified Communications on these type of networks. I think we'll be pushing those on mobile networks. And I think... I think that's not too far. I mean, we're doing it today here at telecommunications. Communications. I imagine it's going to be much more widespread going forward.
0: I think in the US, we have the net neutrality things that actually there's no proof of service provider. I mean, I, I don't want to talk about in terms of which telco it is, mm-hmm. etc. I just think that do you foresee, because of the type of requirements of different people requiring different content at different scale? I mean, we're talking about yeah. like a premier league game mm-hmm. in real time, right? We're talking about one millisecond latency video, for example. Mm-hmm. Do you foresee that they will also end up having preferred networks at some point?
1: Yeah, I do. I think it's an inevitability. Our customers determine segmentation at the end of the day. If you take, look at the vehicle that you drive. That's You've determined the segmentation of the market. You're willing to pay for X type of vehicle at X type, Y type of price. You know you can get higher orders or lower orders of vehicles, but you've determined that that, you've effectively made a segmentation decision. The consumer, as in aggregate, is actually quite intelligent. If you think about it, it's a neural network. They decide the segmentation. You can regulate it as much as you want, but... And I'm not making a proposition for net neutrality or against it. I'm just telling you that ultimately the the consumer will make that call. Five G as a technology has something called network slicing, where you can actually split up different grades of service. So it makes net neutrality a bygone conversation on That's its right. on, on its own. So it's I'll leave it. Point. I'll leave it to the regulators, but I think the consumer has already made that choice that they do. Choose different grades of service based on what they're willing to pay, and they understand that there's different strata.
0: Anthony, so good to have you on the show and I'm seriously, this is probably one of the best conversations I have on IOP. Sorry, Charles, you're not on <laughs> this week, but I think we all three of us should be someday having drinks and have a longer chat on that right? I think we should. I look forward yeah. to the day. So in closing, I want to ask two questions. My first question is, can you recommend a book, podcast, movie, or something that you find is important either to your work or personal life? Uh, to me, uh, well, uh,
1: the most recent one that i recall that really moved me was outliers i know that one's been there for a while the Malcolm gladwell i find that found that one interesting and i'm also spending some time reading singularity is near that's the uh, ray, kurzweil book. ray kurzweil book you know when you're in the technology space you realize that we have come so far in the last 5 years I can just imagine what the next five or ten are going to look like.
0: Mm, I will put an additional book to that is to read Abundance by Steve Koppler and Peter De Mendes because it's a follow up to the singularity. I have the
1: book. It's on the shelf. Oh. Not yet read. Oh, then you should
0: read after that then. Okay. Yeah, I'll it's, do it's, that. It's a great follow up book actually on that because it tells you the economics of what happens when the singularity hits ah. as well. All right, so, look. last question, how do my audience find you, LinkedIn?
1: Yeah, LinkedIn's probably the, the easiest uh, easiest and most uh, prolific way to get me.
0: Mm. And you, of course, can find me at bernardleong or com, or subscribe to us at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, TuneIn, and, of course, Google Play in the U.S. market. Of course, recommend us on Overcast with a star. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes and please leave a review there because it really helps in getting our podcast discovered. And, Anthony, once again, thank you for coming on the show.
1: My pleasure, Bernard.